And with more bloodshed comes more bloodshed. And there is no security solution to this. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. We are in the midst of an escalating cycle of violence in Israel and Palestine. On Thursday, January 26, Israeli forces killed at least nine people in a raid in the Jenin refugee camp in the West Bank. The following evening, a Palestinian gunman killed seven people outside a synagogue in East Jerusalem. More violence followed over the weekend, and as I record this on Monday, January 30th, Anthony Blinken is in Jerusalem and Ramallah in an attempt to prevent the situation from deteriorating further. I caught up with journalist Dalia Hatuka, who has been reporting from Israel and Palestine for many years. We kick off discussing some of the broader context in which this escalatory cycle of violence has emerged. This includes a 10-month-old series of stepped-up raids by Israel into the West Bank and Gaza, known as Operation Break the Wave, which commenced following a series of knife attacks against Israelis last year. We also discuss why this current violence may or may not lead to a so-called Third Intifada and the link between Israel's new hard right-wing government and this apparently devolving crisis. The situation is very much in flux and unpredictable at time of recording, but this conversation will give you very helpful context for understanding this crisis as it evolves and unfolds over the next few days, weeks, and months. Now here is my conversation with journalist Dalia Hatuka. Before we discuss the calamitous events of the last several days, I just wanted to have you go back and set the context for listeners in terms of the sharply increased Israeli incursions into the West Bank and Gaza over the last 10 months or so under what the Israelis have called Operation Break the Wave. How have people in the West Bank and Gaza experienced this? So what's interesting is that um, every time... 
a cycle of violence happens, uh, such as the current one that you're talking about, is that we kind of tend to forget how these cycles happen to begin with. Usually the immediate culprit, so to speak, is either a shooting attack or an Israeli raid on a city that turns deadly. But these are just immediate reasons, so to speak. I think the larger context is that what we have here is a pretty lengthy occupation or, you know, for people who do not like to use that word, military rule by Israel of Palestinians in the West Bank and a siege on Gaza as well that's also being put into place with the backing of Egypt. And as you may well know, once you put people under that kind of pressure, and this is by no means a way to kind of give excuses or anything of the sort as to why these cycles of violence happen. This is just the context in which they happen. And even before the shootings happened on Saturday, where seven Israelis were killed in occupied East Jerusalem, up until this year, 30 Palestinians had been killed. So there's a lot of action and reaction, but also there's always something simmering beneath the surface. Now to just get to the cycle that we're talking about right now, as I mentioned, seven people were killed in an attack outside a synagogue in occupied East Jerusalem on Friday. On Saturday, a 13-year-old Palestinian boy shot and seriously injured two Israelis near the old city. This came after nine Palestinians were killed on Thursday and dozens were injured in an Israeli military raid on Janine. And as I mentioned, Israeli forces have killed some 32 or 33 Palestinians this month. I think it's worth explaining that basically Israel has adopted a policy in which the military rule of Palestinians is treated like a security problem rather than a political one. There has been very little effort, I would say even as way back as 2014, where there's been no attempt to find a political solution to anything. And this has been Netanyahu's real innovation on the political stage in more recent years is to abandon the pretext of a political solution, the two-state solution, or anything really, and instead treat this as a security problem first and foremost, right? And it's in that context that I'm curious to learn from you how his newly formed government since December, a very kind of hardcore right-wing nationalist government is approaching or changing that dynamic in any meaningful way. I would first start off by saying that Israel's had little in the way of international pushback, even as it's moved further and further to the far right and increased its hold over Palestinian life. I would say that the new Israeli government, and I'm sure a lot of other people have said this as well, is probably the most right-wing in the country's history. And it sparked fears for Palestinians in the West Bank and in Israel proper, as well as Israelis as well. And, and that's the reason why we've been seeing 
all these protests and demonstrations in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem. You're referring to protests recently. Some 100,000 Israelis came out to protest the you know, certain policies of this new right-wing government, including a plan to potentially subjugate the Israeli courts to the rule of the Knesset, which is a separate but interrelated issue, I think, to what we're discussing today. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll mention that in a second. I just want to mention that basically part of this new government are personalities, so to speak, that are pretty, I would say, racist. You've got National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir and Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich. And both of them have been outspoken about their intention to expand what's known as illegal settlements. I mean, all settlements in the occupied West Bank are illegal, but you've got these outposts that the Israeli government deems illegal for its own purposes, basically. And also, they've been outspoken about the annexation of Palestinian land, and they're notorious for inciting violence against Palestinians. So you've got these personalities, but they hold these important positions in the government. And Netanyahu has kind of given in to these personalities because he doesn't have any other choice. Now, we've mentioned that tens of thousands of Israelis protesting against the government for, I would say, the fourth consecutive week. And the protests are directed primarily against the government's proposed changes that would weaken the judicial system. Basically, according to the plans, a majority in parliament should be able to pass a law, even if it violates the basic law in the opinion of the Supreme Court. And the new justice minister, Yariv Levin, wants to also change the composition of the body that appoints judges. So in the larger scheme of things, what we're looking at is the far-reaching changes could also play into Netanyahu's hands in his current corruption trial, where he stands accused of fraud, breach of trust, and corruption. And we've always known that, you know, Netanyahu has accused the Supreme Court of excessive interference in political decisions. And also, I think what he's worried about is the fact that the Supreme Court has often sided with human rights groups such as B'Tselem and others. And I think some, you know, especially observers of this patch of land, they fear an end to democracy in the country if these plans are implemented. Yeah, I mean, this is like very much a clear example of attempted subjugation of the independence of judiciary by a government, something the U.S. has been critical of. It's something that we saw happen in kind of other kind of right-wing governments in Europe, like in Poland and Hungary in recent years. It hasn't happened yet, and there has been strong pushback, as you described. But I am interested to learn if you can draw a connection, if there is a connection to be drawn in the first place between attempts by this new right-wing government to subjugate the judicial independence of the Supreme Court and its apparent increased willingness to engage in risky and deadly security operations in occupied territories. I think this is a good point to kind of mention that as Netanyahu has been making these attempts to kind of weaken the Supreme Court, he's also upped 
the collective punishment of Palestinians. So just in the past week, Netanyahu, for example, said he would expedite gun permits for Israeli citizens. And Israeli police are also encouraging those with existing licenses to carry their guns. So effectively, he's giving the green light for all Israelis to basically inflict violence upon Palestinians with full impunity. I mean, Israel's already armed to the teeth. And shooting at Palestinians is very common. It's not all uncommon to see Israeli settlers walking around, not just with handguns, but with assault rifles. Like you go to the mall or on the bus or on the train and religious places, and you see all kinds of people carrying weapons. And the thing is, we've already had like a really deadly year, like 2022 was the deadliest year for Palestinians in 16 years, according to the United Nations. And among those killed, you probably know, is Al Jazeera journalist Shirin Abu Aqleh. She was both a Palestinian and an American citizen. And we still have not had any justice carried out for her death. And also part of the punitive measures against Palestinians, I believe Netanyahu has also said that the home's of suspected assailants will be sealed ahead of demolition. Usually it happens after the fact. And also there are lots of consequences for families of attackers, which have nothing to do with it. And that's why even Israeli human rights groups have called these basically acts of collective punishment, because he's also potentially looking at stripping families of assailants of citizenship rights and deporting them. So in this kind of current escalatory cycle in which, you know, we find ourselves right now, what are you looking towards on the Palestinian side that will suggest to you how or if this situation might deteriorate further? There has been a rise in the number of lone wolf attacks by Palestinians inside Israel. And this is a sign of frustration and a sign of a younger Palestinian generation that wants to take revenge. For example, one of the men who carried out an attack in the last couple of days, his grandfather was killed by an Israeli settler like two decades ago. And these things keep on happening. And with more bloodshed comes more bloodshed. And there is no security solution to this. I believe this is also what's led to the emergence of a, over the last year of several armed groups in the West Bank. Again, they're lone wolf, quote unquote, groups because they're not under the direct control of the direct Palestinian factions such as Fatah, Hamas, or anyone else. And the members of these new groups, maybe the most famous of them is the Lion's Den. I think the Lion's Den is a very useful example of the trend that you are describing here. So can you kind of remind listeners who may not have heard of them, who they are and why their emergence is indicative of broader trends? So basically, they're a group that was based in Nablus. And the reason I say was is because... Israeli forces went in there and either killed all of them or took some of them into prison. These groups are notably young, 
They have not been under, as I mentioned, the direct control of traditional Palestinian factions. Many of them have affiliations with the traditional factions, but they've decided to go their own way and take the fight to the Israelis. These new groups speak to a wider issue, which is the increasing irrelevance of the elderly politicians who have dominated Palestinian political life for decades. And that includes the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, who is 87 right now. He's unpopular and he has no natural successor. And also, as I mentioned earlier, it speaks to the popularity of more lone wolf attacks, which make it harder for Israel's security establishment to take care of the issue, so to speak. And for these new groups, the objective is not to calm things, but to end the occupation. They believe that the only way to push back against Israel's armed occupation is to themselves also be armed. But as far as your larger question, I don't see a way out right now, to be honest with you. The occupation has looked even more entrenched now that we have more far-right groups growing stronger in the Israeli government. Illegal Israeli settlements in the West Bank, they're already home to half a million people. They're on the rise. And as I mentioned earlier, the Israeli government is set to legalize settler outposts that have been considered illegal under Israeli law. You've got thousands of Palestinians as prisoners. 800 of them are being held without trial. And then events like, you know, raids in Jenin bring the situation to a precipice. And any number of incidents could set off, I don't want to call it a third uprising. We've had like dozens of almost third uprisings in the past, you know, few years. But I would say they could set off clashes or whatnot. And those include any changes that happen at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in occupied East Jerusalem which Israelis refer to as the Temple Mount, yet another Israeli war on Gaza, displacement of Palestinians in Jerusalem or the West Bank, or even a deadly Israeli raid into a Palestinian refugee camp. So any of these issues could set off something much larger and something that we can't control, which is why we've seen Blinken come into the picture Uh, even though his visit was pre-planned, but I think these are some of the issues that he might discuss with the leaders in Israel and Palestine. I do want to ask you more about the prospect of a third intifada, as you just referenced. It's your view that right now we could potentially be on the cusp of such a thing, and you just identified a few scenarios that could kind of spark the inescalatory cycle even further to that Third Intifada. Could you just explain what would be the significance of a third Intifada right now? To be honest with you, I, I'm really hesitant to call it a third Intifada or an uprising because since at least 2014, we've genuinely had maybe half a dozen third Intifadas, so to speak, because every time it's something. And it's almost like it's something, but it's something that we always have. So it's almost like Groundhog Day. So the status quo at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which dictates that basically Jews cannot pray at that area, 
could change and that could spark all kinds of clashes, which it's done before. I mean, the the second Intifada in 2000, 2001 was, you know, ignited because then Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon decided to take a trip or make a visit there. And that was the spark, basically, for that second Intifada. My biggest fear also is another Israeli war on Gaza. Those are really deadly. You've got millions of people in a very small stretch of land. We also know that Israel plans on displacing dozens of Palestinians in certain villages in both East Jerusalem and the West Bank. And these deadly Israeli raids are continuing on like almost on a daily basis. And I'm honestly like not sure if any of these things will, you know, be large enough to set off what we want to call a third intifada or uprising. But whatever it is that they do, it's dangerous. It sets us back years. All this time while the Americans are kind of watching and not really doing much. And I believe that the Americans have a very strong position that they can take. And they have the kind of position to make a change because of the close relationship that Washington and Israel have. Does this current moment strike you as just kind of feeling different than other previous moments of crisis over the last few years? Or is this just kind of more of the same? I mean, sadly, it's more of the same, but there are a few differences. Like I said, you've got like more lone wolf attacks. You've got these little armed groups of young men, things of that nature. But also, I think the fear is that Israel right now, especially with this right-wing government, has zero qualms about going, you know, full security military option on Palestinians. I mean, what we saw with Shirin Abu Akhle, you know, killed with the impunity. And this is something that's stirred fears among journalists who, quite honestly, are now a little more hesitant to go and do their jobs like they used to in the past. It's different on small, like micro levels. In the larger context, I think maybe I've been covering this place for like far too long, but I'm just like, oh God, it's Groundhog Day. You know, it's like this amount of people has been killed and then there's a retaliation and whatnot. And that's the thing. You just don't know what's going to happen. It could either just poof, you know, like nothing's happening anymore, or it could like snowball into something bigger. But my guess is that with Lincoln's visit, there's going to be attempts by him and the Egyptians to kind of put a lid on things and maintain the status quo, which is not sustainable because these things will always happen as long as Israel is occupying another people, then we're not going to be able to see any kind of solution unless a political one is made. So really, a lot is riding on Blinken's visit to the region, which was, you know, happened. We're speaking Monday, January 30th. He, he recently touched down. 
Are there any concrete or specific outcomes you'll be looking towards from the Blinken visit that will suggest to you that indeed he has impressed upon the Israelis to perhaps act with more restraint? And are there any potential inroads he could make when he visits Ramallah during this visit as well? So Blinken, you know, is in Jerusalem and Ramallah today and tomorrow. He is slated to meet with Netanyahu, he probably already met him, and with Mahmoud Abbas, respectively. The thing is, is the trip had been planned with Netanyahu's new extreme right-wing government being the focal point. And then, you know, there are concerns over the future of Israel's so-called secular values and the stalled peace talks with the Palestinians. But the trip has taken on a new urgency after, you know, the death of nine Palestinians and the seven Israelis and the attacks in in Jerusalem. And I think that Blinken, you know, will probably do a lot of what other administrations have done. You know, he'll repeat like U.S. calls for calm. He'll emphasize Washington's support for a two-state solution. The interesting thing is that U.S. officials have already admitted that longer-term peace talks are not likely to happen in the near future. I mean, the last time we had any kind of talks was, I believe, 2014, when John Kerry was around. And, you know, when Blinken meets with Abbas, I mean, who does Abbas represent? He's been president for as long as I can remember, which is like, I don't know, two decades and his popularity is almost non-existent. And so he's going to ask him, you know, to take steps to de-escalate tensions. This is what the State Department was telling us, you know, uh, reporters. But the thing is, is Abbas, like, does not have any kind of power to do any of that. Not only does he lack popularity, but also, I mean, he functions under the watchful eye and the fist of the Israeli military rules. So there's, it's not like he can do anything. I think the, the interesting thing would be that Blinken is going to call for the preservation of the status quo at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. That might reach or bring us something substantial because a lot of like far-right ideologues you know, have been making these visits to the site and these have set off fears of violence. And then we've had calls by Jordan, which is the custodian of holy Muslim and Christian sites in Jerusalem, to maintain the status quo. So I think the United States, you know, with its close relationship to Israel, can take a lead on that. It can also take a lead on Middle East diplomacy, but I doubt that Blinken could achieve any breakthroughs. I think the absolute best they can do is to kind of keep things stable to avoid another May 2021, which is, I'm referring to the 11 days of fighting when Israel basically fought with Hamas during that time, and it ended with an Egyptian-brokered ceasefire. So I expect Lincoln to repeat the traditional U.S. positions rather than break new ground. And I guess the trip itself is the message. And finally, I would say like, Blinken will ask Abbas to do more, but it's not really clear what he can do, what he or the Palestinians can do. Dahlia, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you speaking with me. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.